titled today's sermon, Forever Friends. And since the parable that he gives is one of the hardest to interpret in the whole Bible, I'm going to explain it with these basic problem-solving questions. This is what a preacher does when he does not know what a passage means, okay? This is the outline. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. So with that said, if you are able, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. And if you are not able, please stand with us in your heart. Again, today's passage is Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. Church, hear the word of the Lord. He has also said to the disciples, There is a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write down eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. You may be seated. Now, I suppose that many of you may be watching through Amazon Prime's newest series, and I've heard the most expensive one in the history of the world, The Rings of Power, based on J.R.R. Tolkien's books, The Lord of the Rings. Anybody? Yeah? Watching it so far? Okay. Of course, many people think of this as just epic fantasy. But one of the central themes of the story is actually friendship. And perhaps the most surprising friendship of all is that between an elf named Legolas and a dwarf named Gimli. Now, you have to understand in the context of the book, elves and dwarves are absolute enemies to one another. And so when Legolas and Gimli are pulled together into a small fellowship that will seek to save Middle-earth, they're constantly at odds with each other. And the only thing that finally breaks through that hostility is when they meet an elf queen named Galadriel. 
There we read this. She looked upon Gimli, who sat glowering and sad, and she smiled. And the dwarf, hearing her in his own ancient tongue, looked up and met her eyes. And it seemed to him that he looked suddenly into the heart of an enemy and saw their love and understanding. Wonder came into his face, and then he smiled in answer. From there, Legolas and Gimli would become inseparable friends. So close, in fact, that later Gimli would become the only dwarf in the history of Middle-earth who wanted to, and was invited to, sail with the elves to the eternal shores of Amman. There, they would truly be forever friends. Now, what could this possibly have to do with a parable about money? (laughs) Well, that's just how upside down that Jesus tends to turn things. For example, think about in our culture what we naturally sacrifice to what I will call today the hustle. You know what the hustle is? It's the churn of our lives. The natural orbit that pulls us into constantly overworking, overspending, doing way too much just to keep up with Whatever is going on in and around us. And what we sacrifice to the hustle is deep relationships. I mean, that's the epidemic that showed up in the midst of the pandemic, right? Suddenly, when people's work rhythms were taken away and normal social environments were closed, we felt the full gaping hole of our relational isolation, didn't we? And then, when we reckoned with it and we vowed that we'd never let ourselves get so busy ever again, what did we do? We went right back to the hustle. So, like, sure, we have lots of acquaintances who know about us, but who really knows us? Who do we drop everything for and they for us? As my African friends have unforgettably taught me, Here is true poverty, not a lack of wealth, but a lack of friends. But Jesus shows up in our midst with such a deep desire to befriend us that he confronts us with some soul-searching questions. What is true wealth? What is true security? What is it that your heart is most deeply longing for when your hands are grasping to get more money and then ringing to keep it. And to that end, he tells this fascinating parable. So let me walk through it with you briefly. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So think of this manager similar to Joseph's relationship to Potiphar in the book of Genesis. He had the kind of position where he managed the rich man's money, even making large investments for him. That is, he was a trusted steward. Unfortunately for him, though, however, this word has gotten around that he has been mismanaging his master's money. And we're not told exactly how, but the rich man believes the accusations, and so the manager is to give an account of his dealings and turn in his keys. Verse 3. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. 
So the manager knows that not only will he be left out of a job, but the community will distrust him so much that he won't be able to find a comparable job. And so with his good standing gone, he knows that he has to do something urgent to find standing with others. Verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. And then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. Now there are lots of theories about what exactly is happening here, but here's the one that I'm most convinced of. What the manager had done in the past was add in his own large rates of interest to those who had borrowed from his master. And perhaps that was even what had gotten him accused of mismanagement. So what he could do in this scenario is go to the debtors and demand his cut. Of course, in the short term, that would put money in his bank account, but then everyone would distrust him even more, and when the money eventually ran out, he would be as good as dead. Instead, he comes up with a scheme with a view toward the long term. He sits down with debtors who themselves are wealthy people in light of how big these deals are. And he cuts massive portions off their debt. It's a brilliant scheme because here's what it does. It obviously makes the debtors really happy. right? You want somebody to sit down with you and say, oh, how much you owe? Okay, 50% of that's gone. Right? So happy, in fact, that they will heartily trust the manager and likely welcome him into their homes later to help them manage their stuff. And it also makes the rich man look really good. How's that work? Well, you see, in Jewish culture, charging large amounts of interest was looked upon poorly. And so if the rich man condemns the manager and reapplies the interests, then he'll look terrible. But if he praises the manager for the sudden decreases, word's going to get around the community that the rich man is actually a pretty generous guy. And so for this reason, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The master, probably being a shrewd businessman himself, can appreciate a smooth operator like the manager. Okay? And even though this manager's behavior was dishonest, Shrewd, framanos, is a word that Jesus often uses that means wise or good sense. And that's where this parable starts to confuse people, doesn't it? Is Jesus calling sinful behavior wise? Are we supposed to lie and scheme in order to maintain our lifestyle and be in the good favor of wealthy people? Well, in order to apply this properly... Let's turn to our problem-solving questions here. First, who? Who exactly is Jesus addressing this to? Well, although we've entered this section where Luke is, Jesus, uh, where Luke is speaking often of, of people following Jesus in large crowds, we read at the beginning of this passage, He also said to the disciples, Now, this is a message specifically for those who had committed to following Jesus as their master. And it's part of the new ethics of his kingdom. And it sets them apart from those who are not of his kingdom. And so listen to this contrast in verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So by the sons of this world, 
He's referring to people like the characters in the parable who operate only according to a secular framework. They make their way through life by the light of this age, the popular thinking that leads them to invest in a short-term kingdom. Think of Dale Carnegie's famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's great for gaining more influence and making more money and making your dreams come true, but it has nothing to do with the kingdom of Christ. But the disciples, the sons of light they are, they are those who operate according to a redemptive framework with the kind of thinking that leads them to invest in a long-term kingdom, the one to which they already belong. And yet, regardless of whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, his teaching here strikes all of us at the heart. And this is why the secondary audience responds in the way that they do. Verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So this is part of how we know Jesus isn't commending the hustle as an end in itself. Because if he did, the Pharisees would have responded how? They would have loved it. They would have affirmed him, clapped for him all the way. And so, if he's not commending the hustle as an end in itself, then we ask this next question. What? What is Jesus commending? Well, two simple words, but which will require a lot of explanation. Be shrewd. Be shrewd. So we know already from verse 8 that Jesus has seemingly commended the sons of the world as more shrewd in dealing with the world than the sons of light. Think of it like this. You've got two sports teams. Pick whatever sport you like. I'll choose basketball. You can choose whatever you like. One team doesn't have a lot of talent, but it knows the game and will do anything to win, even cheat. That's the sons of the world with their secular framework. The other team has loads of talent and is on an entirely different level. No competition at all. They're the sons of light. But when they play against each other in the first round of a tournament, the untalented team comes in ready to work their game plan, okay? Their scheme. And they're going to work it perfectly. For all intents and purposes, this one game is their championship game. And so they're shrewd in how they approach it. Meanwhile, the talented team shows up thinking that they don't even need a scheme. They don't need a game plan because they're looking ahead to the tournament championship and thinking that they've already won it all. They're not shrewd in the least. And so what's going to happen in this game? Right? Somebody's going down in the first round and it's going to be a surprise. And what team is going to be commended for playing like champions? For coming ready to win? And the message here isn't for us to take on the unsportsmanlike tactics of the world, but to take on the shrewd mindset. Instead of scheming according to evil, scheme according to good. Have a game plan here. Take the ways and means and ends of the world, and instead of abandoning them, Redeem them according to God's good purposes. You know, one of the things that I've loved to learn from Pastor Jason is this concept of taking the ways and ends and means of the world, taking wealth that God gives us, and using it, leveraging it in creative ways. 
for the sake of God's glory and his kingdom. I mean, he has taken the idea of Bitcoin and turned it into something called mining for missions. He's taking Bitcoin and raising money for missions. That's far different than running away and saying, ah, it's all bad, get away, I don't want any money, I don't like Bitcoin, that's sketchy. It's like, no, I'm going to press into this and have dominion over it for the sake of God's glory. And so if the world makes temporary friends for itself by means of unrighteously gained wealth, then how much more should Jesus' disciples make forever friends for themselves by means of the world's wealth? So think of the hated chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. When his allegiance shifted from money to Jesus, what happened? Like, he didn't burn his money, did it? No, he gave away half his goods and restored four times as much to anyone that he had cheated. Do you think he made some friends that day? Yes, sir, he sure did. And according to a redemptive framework, this is the joy. The joy of using money as it was intended, dreaming and scheming for the kingdom. Be shrewd, Jesus says to his disciples. And so then our question becomes, when? When are we to be shrewd like this? Is it when we get our first job? Is it when our career really gets going? When our savings account is so overwhelming that we don't know what to do with it? When our retirement plan is fully vested? Jesus tells us in verse 10, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. The short answer here to when the disciples of Jesus are to be shrewd with their money at all times. These aren't just kingdom ethics for rich people. Okay, Just like it was in Jesus' day, wealth is relative. And it's easy for people to look at the classes above them and assume the more wealthy and successful people are inherently bad, or at least are worse than themselves. The reality is that assumption often comes from jealousy and self-righteousness. And whether you're a child here today wanting to buy a Lego set with your piggy bank, or a retiree wanting to leave a big inheritance to your children and grandchildren, or anything in between that spectrum. We are all called to steward our money with God's bigger vision. Which leads us to the next question. Where? Where does God's bigger vision for money point us? For that, we return to verse 9. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So if you remember, the manager gave up the short-term profit he could have had in order to win long-term friends. They would then welcome him into their homes and ask him to help them manage it. In other words, he invested in relationships. Jesus is saying here, now take that secular framework and redeem it. Take your temporary money and leverage it in ways that make for you forever friends. And that's what you're longing for most anyways. So 
One of my favorite hip-hop songs from the 90s was the Notorious B.I.G.'s Mo Money, Mo Problems. You're hearing it in your head if you know it, because it's unforgettable, all right? And mostly it was the beat, but the message of the song stuck with me too. The more money you have, the more complicated your life actually becomes. You see, we look to money for significance and security, but the more that we pursue it, the more that it tends to put us at a relational distance from others. You don't know if people want to be your friends because of you or because of your money. You don't know if people are drawn near because they want to get something out of you. And so trust is undercut. And ultimately then, wealth fails us altogether when we die and cannot take it with us. You know, the only thing that can provide the significance and security that we all hustle for? Relationships. As Pastor Tim Keller says, you only feel truly wealthy when you're surrounded by people you love and who love you back. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? In the book of Revelation and, and all its like cosmic, scary imagery, do you know the one super ordinary picture that Jesus gives us of His eternal kingdom? It's a wedding banquet. And it's where all God's people share a meal together in the company of forever friends. That is true wealth. Right there is the picture. And so recently, Katie and I hung a drawing of this in our living room from the artist Ned Bastard. And it comes from a liturgy for feasting with friends in the book Every Moment Holy. And the idea behind this is to remind us to leverage our scratched-up dining table and all of our scratched-up lives to foreshadow that eternal dwelling with forever friends. Now let me give you another example. No doubt cheesier, all right? In the late 80s came this unforgettable song from the artist Ray Bolts. It's coming. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. All right, all right, we'll stop there. We'll stop there. We don't want it to get loose in here, okay? Ray has a way of causing that. The idea of this song, one of these narrative songs, right? was that it was a Christian who had died and gone to heaven. And then one by one, people came up and told him ways that he had helped them come to know Jesus. You taught Sunday school, and I believed in Jesus, so I'm here today. You gave money to missions, and guess what? I'm one of the people who came to know Jesus through the work of that missionary. All right? And so I know that that is cheesy, okay? But it does get at the idea that Jesus is communicating here. Leverage all that you have so that one day when you are welcomed into God's presence, not only will He greet you with great joy, but also the many friends that you've helped to be there as well. That's the idea that Jesus is communicating here. Now, of course, this pulls at our heartstrings. But if we're serious about all that Jesus is demanding of us here, we might find ourselves asking this question. Why? 
Why is this all so encompassing? The sons of the world know how to give good give to good causes. They know how to write checks to people in need. Okay? They do. People do it and do it well and do it on amazing scales. But Jesus doesn't seem satisfied with humanitarianism and philanthropy and altruism. Why not? Well, the answer comes in verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is not your own or that which is your own? The reality is nothing that you have actually belongs to you. One of the most core values in American culture is ownership. My money is my money. All right? I worked for it. Even when I donate it, it's my money. But the Bible actually teaches that God owns everything because He created it. So your health, your intelligence, your circumstances, opportunities, talents, even the luck that you find yourself getting, all that allows you to hustle, it's all on loan from God. And according to Malachi chapter 3, any instance in which we are not open-handed and generous at heart with all that God has entrusted to us to steward, we are not just being stingy. Malachi says you are robbing God. You are thieves. You're the manager. He's the rich man. And one day you're going to give an account and turn in your keys. You know what you're going to need to get through that? A ridiculously good scheme. So one more really important final question. How? How do you get that scheme? Well, you have to see first that you can't. One of the most devastating things that Jesus says, not only in this passage, but in all his teaching, is this in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what's he saying? He's saying, I created the very concept of money and currency and trade, and I did so that you would have dominion over it and use it for good like I do. But instead of it having dominion over, or you having dominion over it, it has dominion over you. You have given your allegiance to another master. So we may want to be like Zacchaeus, but we are actually more like the rich young ruler. Y'all remember him? He also had a genuine desire to invest in Jesus' kingdom, but he couldn't do it. Not just because he had great possessions, but because he thought he could possess everything he needed through the hustle. He could get it, make a way for himself. And you see, God demands that He be the one that we drop everything for. And as long as He does, inevitably we will view Him as the enemy. But here's the good news, my friends. 
we may sit like Gimli when we hear this word. When someone preaches about money, we may sit like Gimli, as indeed we probably should, glowering and sad over our sin. But one greater than Galadriel is here. Okay? And he smiles upon us, and he speaks in our tongue, and he looks into our hearts with love and understanding. Listen to these words about him. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Listen, like Jesus is the manager who gave up all that he could have had in the short term in order to gain something far greater in the long term. Here's how shrewd he was in giving up his life. He helps everyone to see that his father, the rich man, is infinitely generous. Here's how redemptive his hustle was in taking on our dishonesty. The only son of light crucified for the sons of the world. He makes a way so that enemies of God can become forever friends. Those who are as good as dead received into eternal dwellings. Yo, he dropped everything for you. See that? And today he is risen from the dead and eager to receive anyone who recognizes their poverty. No matter how wealthy you are, coming to him and saying, I have nothing because it all belongs to you and I've wasted so much of it. You come recognizing your poverty. Then you recognize that he actually dropped everything for you, all his riches so that he could receive you gladly as a forever friend into his eternal dwelling. You know what that is? It's a ridiculously good scheme. And it's this gospel scheme alone that can leave you at the end of a sermon about money, running to money instead of away from it. Did I just say that right? Did you hear that right? I've said a lot of things wrong in this sermon this morning because I'm tired and stumbling over my words, but I didn't say that part wrong. How can you at the end of a sermon about money walk out of here not feeling like the preacher has just dredged you to death, but leave excited and running to money to do something with it for the glory of God? Here's, it's this gospel scheme that can allow that. Why? Because God's aim isn't just to welcome us into his home as trusted friends because we didn't touch his money. His aim is for us to help him manage the new creation because we used his money for good in the old creation. You tracking with me there? Okay. Scheme for the kingdom is the message that I want to give to those who are following Jesus today. Turn this upside down, the way that the world uses money, and and use it for good, for His glory, okay? And I don't know what that looks like in your life. It doesn't matter if you're really, really wealthy or you don't have a whole lot. There are ways you can leverage your money to scheme for the kingdom, to multiply it so that forever friends would be welcomed into God's home, okay? And if you're wondering how can you do that in the context of participating in the life of this church, well, here's three things. One, we've got a facilities and a grounds, 11 acres that we need to pour into and leverage for the sake of forever friends being welcomed into God's kingdom because they came to know Jesus in this space. All right? 
So your faithful giving, invest in that. Your participation in the work day, invest in that. Also, we have some distributed members. Sandy, KB, the Speaks that I know of, there may be others. Their prayer cards are out there on that wall. They are raising money so that they can serve in places where they can proclaim the good news of Jesus. You know, it's sad that they consider us their primary sending church, but they have to go around to lots of other churches to raise all the money that they need. Why? Could we step up a little bit more? Is there more of your finances that you could leverage in particular for those people? Do you know that your giving already blesses them because it goes into the common pot that serves them? But you can also go above and beyond and give to them directly. And what if you began making a personal investment into a particular missionary and you got so involved in their ministry that you began to see, wait a minute, the money I'm giving is actually multiplying the kingdom in another place. This is so much fun. I want to give more. Hey, do you need more? Hey, I heard about mining for missions. I'm kind of into Bitcoin. How can I get in on that and figure out how to multiply this even more? You may find an unbelievable joy that you've never had before, especially for those of you who maybe are in the business world and enjoy these sorts of things. And then finally, we're coming up on budget season. We said at the end of family meeting last year, December, that, hey, in 2023, we want to be able to raise up some new staff members. But we're not quite where we need to be financially to be able to do that. You know what? I would really love for that to be able to happen so that I don't burn out and die as the only full-time staff member at this church. I hope you would want that for me as well, okay? And so your faithful giving and giving above and beyond might allow that to be possible. And so that we might be able to be a church that grows beyond where we are now and see more people come to know Jesus as forever friends. Okay? I hope that's a joyful and exciting vision for you at the end of this sermon instead of you feeling like you've been booted out of here again because I waved at you like that money is bad and don't touch it. Okay? It can be bad. It can drag your heart away and certainly in our culture it is. But it can also be turned for good. Redeemed in light of Jesus' beautiful gospel scheme. Amen? Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread, and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. We are announcing today that Jesus Christ is the way to be friends with God forever. Amen. Our invitation today, if you're a baptized believer, is to come forward to break off a piece of bread, to dip it into the juice, remembering what Christ has done for you, and through this act, proclaiming that he is coming again with his new creation. That vision of of people surrounded at a, at a marriage banquet, a wedding feast together. That's what you come with your, with, within your heart and your mind as you come to this table. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, I hope that you have not heard me say some sort of prosperity gospel sort of thing where it's like, you know, you use your money just right, Jesus will love you and give you more for it. But that you have heard that Jesus laid down everything, all his riches, so that he could have a relationship with you. And if you would recognize your poverty and come to him, you could be saved and be a forever friend of Jesus and participate later in what we're doing here today. So this is just the sign. This is just the symbol. You take the real thing. There'll be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. 
Father, we bow before you this morning, and I just want to personally thank you on behalf of the church for really hard passages. Because what they do is they cause us to draw near, to lay at your feet, to plead with you as to what in the world you are trying to communicate to us. And so often, it's, if we're able to and we're willing to put in the hard work of searching out the meaning of what you're saying, by the power of your spirit and the, the living nature of your word, you will speak to our hearts and you'll open our eyes and you'll convict us of sin and you'll lead us to repentance. Lord, I pray in this moment that you would lead your people to repentance where they need to be led to repentance. And that as they acknowledge their sin to you, that you would show them that you look upon them with love and understanding, that you dropped everything for them at the cross so that you could pick them up as forever friends. And Lord, if, those are in the midst, if there are people in the midst who do not know you today, I pray that you would draw them near to yourself, that they would see here the kind of scheme that nothing in the world has ever, ever appealed to them, a scheme that would allow them to have the kind of riches that the world just can't give. And Lord, I pray that as your spirit moves in our midst, that you would be glorified and that we would be changed. Wherever we are in relationship to you this morning, I pray that you would draw us near and move us closer, make us more like you, and that you would save. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.